0: Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next edition of the Sports Pro Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Now, today, Nick, we're going to be talking about challenger sports, and it got me thinking about great underdog stories. And I'm not sure, you know, whether there's any particular underdog stories that stick out to you. You know, you got classic movies like Rocky coming up, going up the stairs in Philadelphia, doing the whole you know arms waving and then you think of real life examples i think of things like lester coming out and winning the premier league you know these real great stories of these underdogs coming out from nowhere i don't i don't know nick if there's any particular underdog story that sticks out for you be easy for me to talk about the Bengals always being slept on but that'd be too easy nick we need to find a better underdog story out there even if it's fictional what you have a favorite underdog story
1: oh you always put me on the spot with these things that is a (laughs) tough one uh, I think, like, remember the Greece in the Euros. I don't know if you, that, um, were, you weren't living over here at that stage. I was living in Australia at the time, but I actually remember that. Um, so I can't remember what year. It was early 2000s, I think, from memory. Yeah. Um, we had a sweepstake at our, our, our place. For the, I, was just, I think I was still at university at the time, and uh, someone won. Greece is a sweepstake. And they literally wanted to try and sell it off for, like, a beer. Uh, and they, no one ended up buying it, and they ended up winning hundreds of dollars because, uh, you know, it was obviously it was it was uh, the biggest one of the biggest underdog wins I think for a tournament that I can I can think of probably definitely in football wise anyway. So that one sticks out. Other than that, I vaguely remember. I mean, Leicester City is probably the the, the one that stands out these days. There's a few golfing ones you could probably lean into. Um, you know, amateurs coming from nowhere to win some tournaments. Um, Gosh, what are they?
0: I'll be honest. One of the ones that sticks out to me just because of the locale that I was at go to the college football days. This will be very much for the American fans. Um, But when... I believe it was, uh, arm or sorry, Appalachian State beat Michigan. So just to give you an idea, Nick, this would be like, um, so Michigan, probably one of the most traditional top five powerhouses in college football ever. Appalachian State's not even the same division. So um, it'd be equivalent to someone like, say, in the championship, going and knocking off Man City. Like, big deal, Um, except this was a regular season game, not a cup game where Man City's resting their starters. You know, this is an actual real football game, and that was one. um, They blocked the field goal at the end of the game, went crazy. Uh, Michigan, I think, was like a top-five team in the country. Um, Being from the state of Ohio, that made a lot of people happy to see Michigan lose. But it definitely goes down as one of the greatest upset victories, sort of, I can remember um, in my lifetime. And then they're all college football. The other one, you'll have to look it up, Nick, if you've not seen it, is – Boise State versus Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. They ran the famous Statue of Liberty play, one of the greatest plays ever. They also ran a hook and ladder to win the game. So anyone that has no idea what I'm talking about, go to YouTube, look up Appalachian State versus Michigan, and then go look up Boise State versus Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. Two of the best upsets I think I can remember. Very college football-centric. But just the absolute excitement, of you know, the upset. Just everyone loves it. And you're always hoping, like you said, Nick, you might just have a cheeky bet on
1: well, you actually lost me completely there. So you probably lost th- <laughs> over three quarters of our audience. But uh, yeah, sounds good. Um, one other one, I just did a quick look, look at the time and I I thought about Emma Raducanu because I think she was ranked well in the hundreds uh, or maybe over, over 100 when she won the US Open and that was a bit out of the blue. She might have even had to qualify for that. Hang on. Yeah, I think she did. So that would be a pretty much... A, pretty big step to go from like qualifying to actually winning the tournament i could be wrong there. i have not researched this because chris always bloody puts me on the spot so (laughs) uh if i'm wrong apologies to the wta anyone listening in but uh there i think that's probably a bit of a standout more recent times trying to think more deep i definitely think there's a few golf ones that would probably be be, stand out but there's a couple of good ones we've thrown in the mix there that's for sure
0: I'm sure someone, and I hope the listeners do come in and let us know, you know, what are your big upsets that, that we're missing? Because obviously there's countless ones, different regions, different sports that we might not follow. Definitely, if you find it, send me a link to it on YouTube so I can go and watch it. Um, I won't tell Nick I'm being distracted from work by doing it, though. <laughs> I've got a random one
1: for you. I've got this in the back of my mind. Something with the, the U.S. basketball team losing to it in someone like the Olympics.
0: Well, I, there's the recent Netflix documentary, The Redeem Team, where yeah. I believe they got knocked off by, was it Argentina? Was it Manu Ginobili that went to knocked Maybe, them off? There yeah. were several that, teams, but I think is that, that was big the enough.
1: One. Is that a big enough underdog story? It's pretty big, right?
0: I mean, the USA, I mean, it was the Dream Team before then, so I'd say it's pretty big. You know, it's our sport. It'd be like, you know you know whenever england if they ever lost to the us in soccer they would be pretty upset about that so for us to lose to a home sport that'd be a pretty big deal i'd say so yeah i mean let's put it this way it was big enough that it sparked the redeem team and now there's a netflix documentary on it so it's got to be some sort of big deal yeah exactly yeah
1: completely if there's an under, if there's a netflix story it must be must be <laughs> significant enough or oh, actually we're getting quite saturated with these days with discovery um documentary stories now so perhaps uh there'll be there'll be uh looking for whatever they can find to to f- populate more of those documentary series uh, in the future but yeah cuz some good options there i think
0: yeah, for sure. Well, moving more into the underdog story, one of the things that we've talked about and we're conscious you know, that our listeners, as much as it might be interesting to hear from an NFL, Premier League, or someone like ESPN or Sky, these organizations with seemingly bottomless pits of money, although layoffs seem to be happening left and right at the moment, there's still a lot of sports organizations in the ecosystem that don't have that sort of coverage. And the broadcast space. I always refer to it as a pie. There's only so many ways to slice it up and more and more money seems to be going to the top of the fu- or not top of the funnel, top of the pyramid. But that doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity for Challenger Sports to get involved and get their slice of it. It just means they're going to, have to be more creative than just relying on broadcasters to pay them a fee. So one of the sessions we're going to listen to today is from our event in New York a few months back, talking to Challenger Brands. So we had the likes of the Drone Racing League, Premier League Lacrosse, and the Professional Fighters League. All three we would put in that Challenger category. that are all trying to figure out some of the questions and strategies of how can they find ways to make money through broadcast revenues. And Nick, this is something we like to refer to, you call it your buckets, your tier list. And I know you love tiers, but maybe just kind of go through a little bit why this is an important conversation or how it's a little bit different for these brands than it is for some of the bigger ones. Yeah. Um, I mean, the main thing
1: that I think we always see at the top level or people looking at the industry from you know the 30,000 foot view is they see the big numbers, the big finance, financial numbers being spent on media rights. And they think, well, if we only get a percentage of those rights revenues, In our sporting organization, we're going to be a huge success. But that's not how it all works. It's not like launching a consumer product and it's getting a percentage of a marketplace. It can be that, like you talked about that pie analogy, that you will never get a piece of that pie. And if you're not getting a piece of the pie, how do you still build a sustainable sports model when media and content consumption has to be at the heart of why you exist and what your purpose is being an entertainment proposition? So, you know, that that's something I think that sometimes people coming into the sports space don't quite get a full grasp of that. It's not as simple as taking a percentage of the revenues based on your size. You can be quite a big sport and still get zero percent of the media rights revenues that might be offered by major broadcasters in, in key markets. So what other approaches can you take? And that's where you'll be hearing a bit more about that, you know, whether it's social media, whether it's direct to consumer. My take on this is there's sort of three defined uh, buckets uh, or tiers, as you said, of of sports rights. Ones are the the needle movers. Ones are the ones that are reliant on uh, sponsorship as their core revenue, and the others that are the the ones that will never really get on the radar of uh, of a media organisation to to get any coverage at all. Um, the tier ones can basically are in high demand because they. They drive so much interest and engagement around subscriptions and advertising revenues, and basically just drive audiences to those platforms. Uh, tier two are the ones that really need the reach, and that's and they're they're quite happy to work with organisations that can scale their audiences, even if it doesn't mean that there's a big media rights check, as long as they can turn that big audience into uh, revenues through sponsorship um, models. And the tier three is, you know, maybe it's a direct to consumer OTT approach, maybe it's just building up a social media following at the moment. Maybe they're at the earlier stages, um, but it's normally more a direct approach than working with major broadcasters because they're never going to be on the radar, even though we're in a marketplace where there are more platforms than ever servicing content. So that's the quick three three sort of tiers or buckets I like to address. Um, And now an anecdote I'd sort of suggest on that or, or share is that, it's more of a market by market approach. So, for example, the NFL is clearly number one in the in the US. It's the it's the big alpha dog, um, but in the UK, it's in the tier two space or even tier three in some instances. So, um, just that's a, a bit of an anecdote to, to determine. It's not just the sport, but it's the sport in, and in what market when we're talking about it, anyway.
0: And one of the other. You know, we talked about Tears and Buckets. The other thing we've done is refer to the great movie Field of Dreams. You know, the whole saying, if if you build it, they will come. That, that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, we've had previous podcasts that are worth listening to when we did our session with the Cowboy Channel, when we did an interview um, with Pauk FC and what they did with Pauk TV, setting up their own D2C. Actually, building the platform is probably one of the easier things to do, but one of the things people don't realize is all the amount of effort that broadcasters necessarily have to do when it comes to marketing or customer service. These are all things that actually building a platform and putting content on it is actually probably one of the easier aspects of it. It's more the all the issues dealing with, like you said, How do you get people to market it? How do you get people to go through the funnel and consume and purchase? And then what do you do when things go wrong and all of a sudden a football club or a small sports property that's only got two, three people and a digital team and probably no customer service? How do you deal with it when it doesn't go right? And that to me, I think is the interesting bit is actually what you, what is forward facing, I guess, or external facing is actually probably the easiest bit, despite the fact that it seems like it's the shiny new product.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you take some considerations into the, some of the sports properties we're about to hear from uh, and some of the other more longer-term properties that have been in the market for some time, they have different layers layers of fandom, which I think is a really important consideration, right? I think uh, I talk about them as like bucket three or tier three, but some of those organizations in the tier three bucket of having to rely on a direct-to-consumer approach as their core revenue driver for media – can still actually be able to make that a profitable and significant part of their business because they've been in the market for a while and have a captivated audience. Like Volleyball World's the example I've used quite a bit. Squash is another sport in a similar stage. But if you're a new sport into the market, you can't rely on that model because you need to build awareness of your sport as a whole uh, and you don't have a a really mature base of, of either players and athletes or viewers that you can lean into and try and monetize. So yeah, to your point, there is definitely um, some nuance into into all of this and um, a different approach. You know, my big thing is every sports property has to take a slightly different approach depending on their set of characteristics and, and circumstances and timelines that they do have in place. You hear it, it's a bit cliched in the industry to say like, oh, in almost any instance, well, it depends on your objectives. But I think in this instance, rather than using the term objective, I think it's more like the characteristics you're playing with. And whether you've got a blank sheet of paper to start from scratch, or you've got to build something um, off around an existing ecosystem that is, is tough to crack. So, I mean, the people that we're going to hear from are going to probably give some very differing views. Some of them are using more social media focus approach. Some are really focused on building those broadcast partnerships, and some are a bit in the middle. So probably, probably interesting to hear their take because most of them are quite new to the, to the industry.
0: Absolutely, Nick. So from here, we'll go ahead and hand things over to our friend Patrick Craig's as he goes and has a conversation with the Drone Racing League, Premier League, across in the Professional Fighters League.
2: Welcome, everyone. Uh, the name of this panel is Challenger Sports. We're going to get a little into that word. Just quickly about me: my name is Patrick Craig's. I'm the principal of Craig's Media. I was a 23 year long uh, senior Fox Sports executive. I ran the programming research and content strategy group for all 10 networks that Fox controlled at the time, from the broadcast television network to little uh, tiny SVOD products like Fox Soccer Match Pass. And I now run my own consulting group dealing mostly with investors in in the private sector. And um, today we're gonna have three highly qualified individuals who have characteristics of sports that unlike our established behemoths, are not tied necessarily to the pay and revenue models of the past. They emerged organically over the past decade uh, and have their own specific ways of approaching, serving their audiences and their respective fans and revenue and monetization. And they also are escaping some of the existential crisis that the that the established uh, sports media properties are. So first of all I'd like to introduce Allie Dinsmore. She is the vice president of strategy and new business development at the Pro Fighters League. Also um Michael Rebel who is the co-founder and CEO of the Premier uh, Lacrosse League. And then um finally on my left but not least is Rachel Jacobson, the president of the Drone Racing League. All right, so let's get right into it, right? The name of this panel is um Challenge a brand, and when we first met to discuss this panel, I got a lot of pushback from the three folks here at, next to me on my left, and they 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 really had a problem with that word. Not that they found it insulting, but they felt it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't accurate. So let's get into it, and I'll start with Rachel. Rachel, um, you I think know, because I push
3: yeah. back the most. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, look, is this really the right way to refer to these kind of organic sports that have emerged in the twenty first century? Are they really challengers or are they their own thing i mean what what's the right way to refer to these?
3: I think we need to look at it as more we're disruptors. We're tailor made for the twenty first century and really competing against a hundred year old properties that again long format, different demographic you know, maybe a U.S. footprint, not global, and all of the content platforms that we're talking about today didn't exist. So three years ago, when I took this job, coming off 21 years at the NBA, we got put into niche, challenger, and, you know, I told the team, we're a five-year-old property, but when you look at the demographic, everybody is growing up in a tech-first environment. So I don't look at what any of us are doing. And I told Allie and and Mike on the call, this isn't competitive. I think it was the last um, panelist that said, high tide raises all boats. Another one of my catchphrases where there isn't that competitiveness. It's really about the thoughtfulness of bringing a property to market that is custom made for this generation. So that's how I think about it. Not Challenger. We're very much part of the conversation and on our way to being mainstream sports. Right.
2: So, Ali, what are your thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. There are 630
4: million global MMA fans. That's a larger fan base than American football, than rugby, than cricket. Um, so this is not a, a new sport. It is a growth sport. That's really where the potential lies. And you know, what we're doing is presenting it in a differentiated way to the youngest fan base that exists in traditional sports. And I think what we have the ability to do because we are relatively new is we can recognize the fans that we have today and also anticipate where they're going to be tomorrow. We were born nimble. Um, and so we, we have to innovate and we recognize that that's part of our DNA versus i think some traditional sports brands that are playing catch up and trying to capture an audience that was not native to them when they started
5: mike thoughts i mean they both nailed it i think um the difference for us is i actually have a challenger mindset um so i'm like i wake up every day with a bit of a you know it is actually the the merging leagues the growth leagues as ali's saying against the bigger leagues, uh, which it goes against, uh, all tides, lift all boats, but that's just my personal mindset. But I, I think what they're both saying is true, uh, for us and lacrosse is a little bit different. You know, lacrosse is played at extremely high level, uh, both in men's and women's at NCAA. And so for us, uh, building a professional sports league of an, of the oldest sport in North America, started by the native people, the Haudenosaunee, uh, near Toronto, there was already this legacy. There was already these native roots in North America that we could build on and it's played in college. And so for us, it was actually just going head to head with the league that we felt was distressed and, uh, and then eventually merging with them and then building upon that. So we had a bit of a legacy, bit of a platform and and a developed audience. Um, But we still wake up with a challenger mindset. I like to say, and our team likes to to have. Right. Right. That makes sense.
2: Right. You can, you can have that challenger mindset and still be true that it's, it's, it fits in the conversation with everything else in this new era. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the strategies you guys are employing, right? To, to build your brands and, and to build your sports. And let's talk most importantly about, you know, how you do, how do the younger viewers today, younger sports viewers today define themselves versus older generations and kind of how does the role of lifestyle and brand fit into that and connecting with them?
4: Sure. I mean, I think everyone here is familiar with the statistics, you know, Gen Z, doesn't want to watch a full live event. Uh, They expect you to be on the platforms where they are. Discovery is the biggest challenge that any entertainment brand has today, Um, whether you're sports, entertainment, gaming, whatever it may be. So I think the way that we think about our fans is so, so important. What our fans expect of us is personalization, authenticity, and an ability to interact with what we're doing. They want to feel a sense of ownership. Um, and I think that's really valid. And so what we try to do is really leverage storytelling, making sure we're present on every platform where they are, using each of those platforms strategically, um, windowing really carefully, and and treating our fans with respect on whatever platform they may be. We don't think of TikTok as a, a secondary platform. We think of it as a really core part of what we're doing from a content strategy perspective. And last year we launched a streaming fast channel and that, again, it's not a throwaway channel. It's not just old fights. We are programming it very um, strategically to drive tune in and to help people understand who our fighters are to get behind what we're doing. So I think overall, it's just trying to be, you know, to think comprehensively about what we're doing in order to reach our fans really across every digital platform and traditional platform where they may be.
5: Right. Mike. Go ahead. No, that was fantastic. I think a couple things. things. Um, first... The, the When you're a challenger league and the three of our leagues, um, we're all single entity. It allows us to be more nimble and make the adjustments to where our fans are. So at the PLL, 80% of our fans uh, are Gen Z or millennials. So it's like incredibly young. Um, and so being single entity, like the three of us, allows us to be nimble. So one of the reasons why we wanted to show that video was that was the first ever off-season event that we did was uh that we actually ever had and that was a couple of weeks ago in washington dc like you saw which was a consolidated format just like gen z's and and, and millennials want to see so we actually did eight minute quarters the top four teams the regular season our normal season is in the summer june through september and we said hey let's go exactly where our audience is let's create a, a hour and fifteen minute broadcast, higher speed, fewer players. There's no there's no face offs, and let's build this sixes format and something that we think our audience is going to be hopefully receptive to, and it was. But that's like a massive risk, but a risk that we can take in, in a in a calculated way when you're single entity. So it's actually delivering products when you are single entity to be able to be exactly where your audience is, and it starts with understanding who they are. Rachel,
3: yeah, I mean just to echo. Our introduction to our top of funnel fan base is short form content. So linear sits over here, where sure they will show the racing and we have great partnerships on that side, but literally like your first introduction may be the clip on TikTok, or the YouTube, or whatever's trending um, on some of those other platforms, and we've strategically not put our content behind a paywall because we see the upside in several years of monetizing that content. What we wake up every day with that challenger mindset is the top of funnel. It is true awareness and then engagement and moving them through that fan journey to become avid, rabid fans, um, that is, that is where we're focused on. So we've taken the approach of wide streaming, which is essentially not putting any content behind a paywall and looking at the TikTok, the Instagram, the YouTube, where we're just seeing these 10 X quantum leaps because we're programming the content to work for the audience.
2: Okay, so in the context of that, what advantages do you guys think you see for your sports or your leagues uh, as media properties that are native to the to the highly disruptive uh, kind of hybrid environment we have today versus established sports? Mike, go first.
5: Oh, well, we're kind of hitting. It, uh, I think we're hitting on all cylinders. I think for for us, I think I love that Rachel talked about the fan journey. I think owning and really understanding your own data. We have, we've been building our own data warehouse since the beginning. Um, and not outsourcing that, and then like Rachel was saying, literally processing fans through a fan journey allows you to figure out how to develop your strategy. How many are casuals? How many are moderates? How many are rabid? For us, um, something that we're thinking about, you know, we're, we're with NBC. We're with we were with NBC. I just saw Mike Perman who gave us our first shot. So I said that we are with ESPN now, uh, and part of our content um, is traditional broadcast, and part of our our gaming content is um, is through E Plus. But for us, we really want to think about how do we think about uh, gamifying, being a fan. And so we developed two years ago, our product team and tech team did all the work, our own in-house, own and operate app where exclusive content lives, exclusive stats that aren't available anywhere else, better merch drops. Everything's in the app because we control that environment. And now, um, because of that fan journey, we're trying to move them into that more rabid audience. And then through that app, now we're developing this gamification where we're trying to uh, spend more time on with our fans and what it means to to progress up into and, um, and earn more rewards and more interacting you are doing with with the PLL. So for us, we really think about ourselves um, as a nimble media platform that is also using technology to engage, because. I think like Ali said, at the end of the day, your fans are your shareholders and you really have to pay attention to what they're doing and provide them things they want. Because at the end of the day, no fan really wakes up and is like, I need another sport to follow. You have to give them reason to stick to you.
2: So Rachel, how about for you versus the established sports?
3: Drone racing versus established sports? Yeah.
2: Or just 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 generally competing against the established sports in the kind of new 21st century sport that that has been created for each one of your leagues each one, the environment you operate in that's different. How do you guys find the space to build value? Uh, The old way was well-known. The new way I don't think is as well-known.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll take um, two months ago, we were with Francisco Lindor um, and our partners at New Balance. Again, it was like before the playoffs, a few months ago, a few more months ago. I think I lost track with our Miami championship, but all that to say, We look at the traditional stick and ball sports and we can intersect in the most unique fan forward way using technology. So we have Francisco Lindor right before the playoffs. We have New Balance, who's one of our partners, wanting to give the fans really a bird's eye view and push something out on content that had never been before. So we're in batting practice with our drones, capturing this footage. And then again, we're like, the number one trending thing whatever platform we put it on. So I don't look at anyone as competitive but much more additive. So whether we do something with PFL or with PLL like that is spectacular in my mind because I'm taking their fan base, I'm taking their athletes, I'm intersecting it with our league and if I can, seventy percent of our fans right now don't follow the traditional stick and ball. If I can move over from some people that do follow and have our fans engage, also kind of cross platform, there everybody wins. So I don't I look love at. That.
5: Did we just come up with a collab just now? We. I, I'm did. all in. on You saw the the Tyree now, right? In Sports Pro <laughs> OTT stream.
3: Um, so I don't like. I'm not going to compete with a, a generation that's aging out of some other sports, MLB or NASCAR, I'd rather like invest in the Gen Z, this next generation and build up, but still keep a multi-generational fan base. And I use the, I use the example, we were just in Miami for a championship race. You have my parents there, you have, you know, kind of like middle age you have the Gen Zers and you have the families that are there. Everybody found something that was exciting for them. We clearly know our stats merge younger when you talk about that percentage that's really making up your fan base, but we're also not having people age out. They're like rediscovering things to do with their kids that may not have been the baseball game.
2: Alec?
4: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you said it perfectly because it's about Giving every type of fan a way to experience your sport and and your content. Um, and we do that in a lot of ways. We're also distributed live on ESPN and ESPN plus domestically. We work th- with the zone in Europe and you know other broadcasters globally in one hundred and thirty countries. But by the same token, we air a completely different format that is a competition series where fans and celebrities vote on a fighter who wins a PFL contract at the end of every night and that airs on Fubo Sports Network. And so what we can do through our content creation is find a way to serve different groups of fans with different formats and different programming strategies that you know, drive back into what we're doing from a live perspective and what we're creating out of that. And again, just giving people a way to interact because that's what they want to do ultimately. And that's how we get the most value out of them too. So we've talked... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
3: Rachel. Well, one of the other things that I think is so interesting is we're also watching my two friends to the left where you're giving fans these perspectives they've never had before. You know, in the ring, we talk about the flight deck behind the scenes and you're allowing the commentators to actually be the authentic people that are participating in the sport. So whether it's, you know, a idea that we have on the fly or we decide coming off this, you know, take one of either of your athletes. We have an announcer whose husband is a fighter and we love that. He shows up at all of the events. He's pushing out on his social. We don't have the red tape. Like you're looking at the decision makers. So that is the big difference going back to how do you think about competing? We're going to move 10 times quicker. I'll bet on us any day. If we meet with, you name it, Any company that wants to do business with us, we're going to sit across the table and be the decision makers and be the team that says we can do it versus the no's that you normally get in some very well-established properties. There's just too many individuals that need to approve something, I'll call it, before it ever sees the light of day.
2: So that's a great point. So we talk about creating value doing all this. You know, Mike, I'd be interested to know more about what are the kind of the metrics and KPIs you're trying to evaluate yourself against, both established and new ones that reflect the uniqueness of of each one of your leagues.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, the traditional KPIs, um, uh, like, you know, your revenue, um, your costs. Uh, and then we also really think about engagements. Um, and so it's not just impressions. So, you know, obviously impressions are one of the metrics of our social team and content teams or going on, but actually engagement. And so, one of the things that we really think about being a, a challenger or an emerging or a growth uh, league is that we have a really rabid audience. All three of us, um, and and if you look at millennials and Gen Zs, who make up the bulk of our fan bases. They all want to feel individualized. They want to they want to buy the Olipop. They're not buying um, you know Coca Cola. And so when you can provide them something that makes them stand out or feel individualized, you're providing value to them. And that audience is really sticky and that provides them value for your media rights, for your sponsors and things like that. And so we really think about engagement as a, as a metric that we want to continue to drive, because that's also acquisition for brand partners, right? It's like, you just, it's not just empty calorie impressions. It's like, you can't you can't uh, spend against engagements. There's, no, there's and so you know that's likes, shares, comments against social. Other thing we think about is uh, user time usage in app. How much time one of our fans is in our app? Um, we're in Discord and we're thinking about how m- we have a metric around how many people we get into Discord. I have my own uh, channel inside Discord where I'm like chatting with people. It's probably not great my headspace, but I just also understand that our fans are like that's the value, and so we have to stay there with them. So those are some of the unorthodox metrics that we also look at in addition to the the normal revenue and and costs that our our board requires of us. Allie?
4: Yeah. And I think also we look at this across such a broad ecosystem. You know, at the PFL, we look at betting handle driven. um, And we look at digital assets (laughs) shared, um, you know, in the Web3 space, what interest are we driving around the merchandise that we have available there? We work with, you know, a number of celebrities who are investors. How engaged are they? with the brand? Are they attending events? So it's, you know, of course we look at, at all of the traditional things, but, you know, ultimately there are so many levers that we can pull that can drive value for our broadcast partners, for our sponsors and for our fans. And so it, it's a lot to keep track of and to try to synthesize, but I think we, we do a good job of it and, you know, of sharing that message out to the market.
2: Rachel?
3: One of the things I'll add on to all of those other metrics um, that we're tracking is as a company that really the beating heart of our sport is technology. You have to think about the, the partners that you have, the company that we keep. And everybody wants to be the most innovative. So we do partner studies that again look at innovation data sets of if this company works with us, how are they perceived in the market? Which is again, Focused on top of funnel, focused on number of views, focused on ratings and all that fun stuff. But as we think about value that we bring to companies that are investing in us, you better believe that those stats are going to be incredibly important and the engagement numbers that we have globally in the programs that we're bringing to market on their behalf.
2: Okay, so we've got a couple minutes left. I thought we'd uh, take a shot at some questions. How do you see the best opportunity for digital growth? Launch D2C or aggregate with existing established uh, services? I'll let um Ali go first.
4: So, I think what's wonderful about the world we live in today is that these are not mutually exclusive. Um we all have digital platforms that we use to deliver content and and other, you know, valuable media to our partners um, and our fans. So I I also think you have to consider this on a market-by-market basis. Um, What works in one market may not work in another. And again, because we are single entities that own our productions and, and the content that we create, we can actually play around with this and we can activate with a D2C model in a market where that makes more sense. And then we can lean on ESPN in the United States, where that makes more sense at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to the roi and in in doing that and what's going to give us the best reach and the best engagement, as you guys said,
2: Rachel?
3: I mean, I definitely stand behind the not putting a price on that top of funnel awareness. and It may be strategic for some. It may be they're driven by other metrics. But when you think about these established sports, you know, a hundred years that have been in existence, but yet you look at media rights deals, take Formula One in the last couple of years, and that is just blitz scaled, you know, we're going to stay true to that top of funnel. So when we think about like, we want to push all that content out multi-platform and not just be exclusive.
5: Mike? I mean, for for us, I think they they both nailed it. I think for us, our partnership with ESPN uh, and Disney has been incredible for discovery. As we're a growth property, yes, we have our O and O. we, We are fully engaged on social. Uh, We have a production house. It's building our own social groups. But like our partnership with ESPN is, and our game's slotted across ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, and then E+, is really about discovery and then also providing a reputable, consistent format for our games. Additionally, ESPN Films uh, acquired our documentary film for the last four years called Fate of a Sport and then moved it over to Hulu. And it's available on Hulu right now if you have Hulu or ESPN+. And you can watch what it's like in the grind. And I had hair when we started and then now it's gone. But now, but like that type of, of, of platform that has all these different use cases and has the ability to help promote and grow our sport for me is a great partnership. And yes, it's important to be D to C, but right now in our stage of our business, partnerships with um, a uh, a brand like ESPN can, can propel us a lot faster.
2: Okay, so there, I, w- I want to take one more question. I think this question's good. Um good. You, you guys may not have an answer for it, but I think all three of you probably will. As relatively new sporting uh, products, is there a misstep in your journey that you can share that has now positively influenced your current strategy? Rachel?
3: A lot of missteps, fail fast and learn, and then pivot, all that fun stuff. Um, I think early on, and I'll take some accountability for this. Some of it was before I I joined as well. But I think when you have a team that wakes up every day, again, with that like challenge or mindset, we're moving so quickly, there needs to be a little bit of a take a step back. Let's learn from other misses, hits and misses. And when you think about some of the strategies on these digital platforms, you have to make sure the content works is it the right format? Is it quick enough? Because the audience, you just look in the comments in the first three, if they're all negative, take it down. (laughs) So that's the kind of stuff I think. And we pivoted where people that are on TikTok need to be the people waking up every day at DRL programming TikTok. And it can't be a generation that wasn't on TikTok as their main screen. And I look at that through the eyes of my Thirteen-year-old children as well of how they are engaging with these platforms. They know more than I do. They should be the ones out in front.
2: So you're saying there's no chance I'm getting that manager of TikTok media job at DRL?
3: <laughs> I don't know. You can apply. <laughs>
5: right. fix- Mike, Mike, what about you? Do, you? do you have a learning to share? <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's uh, a couple things. One, I should have cold plunged more and done more sauning because it's really stressful. Uh, seriously. <laughs> Now I'm doing a lot more cold plunging, which is great now. But I think the biggest one, it's its kind of built on what Rachel said, is is your people. Um, we can sit up here with these microphones and talk about our business and beat our chest. But the reality is is... It's the people we bring onto the company that are really doing the, the real work. Like we have two folks, Joe and Beck, over there, who are here and, and trying to build relationships with us. And, and so for, for me, I think looking back and some of the, uh, the folks that were a great fit for us early stage may not be a great fit for us later stage. And how do we get quantitative about hiring? And we've really started introducing uh, in a more focused way case studies and making sure people can actually do the work and roll their sleeves up and don't just want to sit around a table and pontificate. Because even if we're a little bit later stage, we still got to grind and we still have that challenger mindset. And so for me, and then to build on that, I'd say um, bringing everything in-house. Like beginning, we sort of outsourced our web and um, we outsourced ticket sales. And it was like, that's all good. And I love agencies, don't get me wrong. But end of the day, we've brought everything in-house. We know our product the best. Like Rachel said, we're waking up and, and beating the alarm clock because we're obsessed with this thing. And that's what's really going to resonate with the brand or your fans uh, or your network partners is that we're living and breathing this. So I think bringing it in-house um, really has been helpful for us as well. Allie?
4: I think for us, we are only a five-year-old company. We move very fast. I think I've I've been with the company a year and a half. And what I've noticed is that in that time, the initiatives we launch have much more follow through today, I think, than they they did maybe on day one. And that's because now the team is is looking farther ahead. Um, we're more established. You know, last year, our CEO said, "You know, we're going to launch a regional European league next year," and everyone said, "Okay." And and now we di- we are, <laughs> um, and it's it's happening on March 25th. You can watch PFL Europe. Um, and, and that's what I'm talking about. It's now, it's not just doing things for the sake of doing them. It is doing them with a very keen strategic mindset and following through so that everything we do has, has purpose and and value. All
2: right. Real quickly for me, uh, from left to right, starting with Rachel, what do you guys see the future as for your leagues and not just with the younger generation, but also with general market? What's, what's the future look like?
3: For us, it's just a more expansive global circuit racing. So you're going to see us race more, bigger audiences and greater frequency of year-round programming. Allie?
4: We will continue to launch regional leagues around the world so that we can super serve local fan bases, ladder those up into kind of a a global PFL league and just bring more people into what we're doing.
5: Mike? So... I think for us, a big area of investment is youth. We have an academy called PLL Academy. Um, but one of the things that we can do, if you look at some of the FS, SFIA information out there, it's like the cost of youth sports is continuing to skyrocket. And so for us, we think we can have an advantage of going in and building fans, but also lowering the cost to play youth sports, which is really important. I mean, it's just sports in general is just like such, it's such a good development piece for. I act like I'm a a father. I am a father of a six month old. I act like I know what I'm doing. It's such an important development piece for for young kids. And so for us, we really think about that as a place we want to spend meaningful time. Um, And as a league, we have the ability to lower that cost. Um, And, you know, I think that the last piece is just continuing to invest in our players. Our players have equity, the same equity that I have, common shares. And we create our players as we, we view our players and treat them like creators. And so how do we do more with them in this, you know, current creator economy?
0: All right, well, guys, that was great. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
5: thank
0: you. thank you. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime podcast.